Today's reading is from Exodus 4 and 5. Then Moses and Aaron returned to Egypt and called all the elders of Israel together. Aaron told them everything that I am had told Moses. And Moses performed the miraculous signs as they watched. Then the people of Israel were convinced that I am had sent Moses and Aaron. When they heard that I am was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. After this presentation to Israel's leaders, Moses and Aaron went and spoke to Pharaoh. They told him, this is what I am, the God of Israel says. Let my people go so they may hold a festival in my honor in the wilderness. Is that so, retorted Pharaoh. And who is I am? Why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I don't know I am, and I will not let Israel go. But Aaron and Moses persisted. The God of the Hebrews has met with us, they declared. So let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness so we can offer sacrifices to I am, our God. If we don't, he will kill us with a plague or with the sword. Pharaoh replied, Moses and Aaron, why are you distracting the people from their tasks? Get back to work. Look, there are many of your people in the land, and you are stopping them from their work. That same day, Pharaoh sent this order to the Egyptian slave drivers and the Israelite foremen. Do not supply any more straw for making bricks. Make the people get it themselves, but still require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they are crying out, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Load them down with more work. Make them sweat. That will teach them to listen to lies. So the slave drivers and foremen went out and told the people, this is what Pharaoh says. I will not provide any more straw for you. Go and get it yourselves. Find it wherever you can, but you must produce just as many bricks as before. So the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt in search of stubble to use as straw. Meanwhile, the Egyptian slave drivers continued to push hard. Meet your daily quota of bricks, just as you did when we provided you with straw, they demanded. Then they whipped the Israelite foremen they had put in charge of the work crews. Why haven't you met your quotas, either yesterday or today, they demanded. So the Israelite foremen went to Pharaoh and pleaded with him. Please don't treat your servants like this, they begged. We are given no straw, but the slave drivers still demand, make bricks. We are being beaten, but it isn't our fault. Your own people are to blame. But Pharaoh shouted, you're just lazy, lazy. That's why you're saying, let us go and offer sacrifices to I am. Now get back to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still produce the full quota of bricks. The Israelite foremen could see that they were in serious trouble when they were told, you must not reduce the number of bricks you make each day. As they left Pharaoh's court, they confronted Moses and Aaron, who were waiting outside for them. The foreman said to them, 
May I am judge and punish you for making us stink before Pharaoh and his officials. You have put a sword into their hands, an excuse to kill us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we come to consider what it is that God would say to us through his word, as we have just heard, let's pray together. Father, we do ask, would you speak to us through the word that you have written? May your spirit give us understanding. Help us to see how you were at work, who you are to us and and to your world in this passage. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We have a basic mindset that if we want something to go well for us, then it it depends on kind of what we put into it. And that if we do kind of the right things, and if we kind of make good choices, then the outcome will be something that's positive. That in a sense, you you kind of, you, you reap what you sow. And that's our mindset because so often, that's the way our lives work. That's the way it unfolds in the world. But there are spaces and there are seasons where we do what is right. We make sometimes those hard choices and we obey God, we trust him and things don't get better, they actually get harder. Like that there's something about doing what is right that actually makes the situation go badly. So say you become a Christian and your life had been characterized by patterns that were destructive, by relationships that uh, pulled you away from what is good. So you become a Christian and, and you really kind of need to step out of what life looked like and away from those friendships from that community. And yet you find yourself on the other side with this new faith and you find yourself lonely and far more isolated and cut off. And it doesn't feel like things have gotten better, it feels like things have gotten harder. Or maybe you are serious about your faith and you're interested in a romantic relationship. You would love to be dating somebody. You'd love to be married to somebody who takes their faith seriously as well. And it feels like all of the the possibilities, all the options that you seem to come across, the people who are interested in you, they're not serious about their faith. And you feel like somehow the pool of possibilities has kind of dried up. And here you are trying to be serious about how your faith has an impact on your relationships. And it means things have gotten harder, not better. Or you're in your company and you come across something that it doesn't feel like the way the books are being put together is right. And so you bring it to to the attention of your superiors and instead of being congratulated, instead of being rewarded, you find yourself actually the one who's in trouble. You find yourself the one whose job is now in peril. Things don't feel like they've gotten better. You've done the right thing and things have gotten harder. What are the questions that come to our mind when we find ourselves in that space? 
where we feel like we're trying to obey God, we're trying to kind of live by faith to do what is right, and things are harder as a result. It makes you go, well, well, maybe I didn't understand what I was supposed to do. Maybe I didn't get it right in terms of what obedience, what the right thing actually looked like. Or more fundamentally, questions about God himself. Well, maybe God actually... Maybe God actually isn't in control of this situation. Maybe God doesn't actually have an ability to to make good things happen, and that's why I've obeyed, and it's actually gotten hard. Or maybe, well, maybe God's actually far less concerned. Maybe God's indifferent. Maybe God doesn't actually care about my life and about where I find myself right now. What's the point of obeying God if this is what my life looks like as a result? That's the space that we often find ourselves in. And I think that's the space that God wants to speak into this morning through this passage in Exodus. That's the space that the Israelites and that Moses and Aaron find themselves. Of stepping into God's calling, stepping into what God is up to, only to find that things get harder, not better. So Moses has been in exile from Egypt. For 40 years, he has been away from them, living in Midian, raising a family. And God shows up in a dramatic way there at Mount Sinai and meets with Moses. And he reveals himself to Moses and he says, this is my name. I am who I am. It's the name that in our Bible translations is usually kind of the Lord with lower caps. And it's so significant the way in which God does that, that for our translation today, we've put in I am to capture that sense that the Lord is not another title, it's God's name. God reveals himself to Moses and says, I am paying attention. I've heard the cries of my people and I am coming down to rescue them and I want you to go. I'm going to work through you to do it. And Moses is overcome with kind of questions and with objections and with doubts to the point where finally he just says, no, 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 God, don't send me, send somebody else. And God patiently engages with Moses and then says, no, Moses, go. And so Moses meets up with his brother Aaron and they come to the elders of Israel and they come to the Israelite people. And something amazing happens. Despite Moses' fears, despite his questions and objections, despite his sense that this is not going to go well, things actually start very well. The elders believe. The people believe. They see the signs and they believe that that God has actually called and sent Moses and Aaron. Look in verse 31 there in chapter 4 in our reading. It says, The people of Israel were convinced that I am had sent Moses and Aaron. When they heard that I am was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. Things are definitely getting better. They have cried out to God because of their oppression and God has listened and God has said, I will save you, I will rescue you. And he sent Moses and Aaron in order to be the means by which he does that. And so in that spirit, Moses and Aaron approach the Pharaoh And they come to him in order to kind of to walk into what God has called them to do. 
Look at how they, they frame it in verse one in chapter five. This is what I am, the God of Israel says. Let my people go so they may hold a festival in my honor in the wilderness. And this is often how, if you were asking something, a request, a favor of someone more powerful than you in this society, you would kind of in a sense start softly and then build up. And so look again in verse three as they kind of expand on it. They say, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. So let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness so we can offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. If we don't, he will kill us with a plague or with the sword. So what are they requesting here? It's, it's a bold request, but actually it's not entirely outrageous. So the, the, the archaeological records that have survived tell us that sometimes Egyptian slaves could be excused from their work precisely in order to worship their God. So there's kind of, kind of a, an excused absences list that in, in one of the, the, the records, and it says for one of the slaves, you know, that he was excused from work in order to worship his God. So what Moses and Aaron are asking here is bold because it's the entire Israelite people, but, but it's not unheard of. And so they're asking, can, can we go and worship our God? And they're using his name. They're saying he's met with us. That's where their confidence comes from. Moses has been fearful and had his objections and something's changed. And it's precisely there. The God of the Hebrews has met us. And so they're putting this out there. And, and God has said that it's supposed to be kind of to take the people out of Egypt permanently and bring them into the land that he promised to their ancestors. And, and Moses and Aaron here kind of almost make a, an initial request to test the waters, to see kind of how is Pharaoh going to respond. I, I wonder if it's almost like a way for Pharaoh's heart to be exposed and tested with this kind of trial run of a three-day festival to offer sacrifices. And they add that curious kind of threat there in verse three of God will, will send plagues with a sword if this doesn't happen. And perhaps it's a way of showing the seriousness of the request. And perhaps it's also maybe even for Pharaoh a, a kind of a, hey, look, if you want your labor force to be taken care of, then you should let us go because bad things could happen to us and therefore bad things could happen to your workforce if you don't. So how, how, how is this met? Like the, the trajectory of this is really promising. God has said, go, I'm going to bring the people out and I'm going to use you. And, and the Israelites have responded and they've worshipped and they've believed. And Moses and Aaron go and they boldly ask. And so what happens? Things do not get better. Things get harder. They get far harder. Because Pharaoh doesn't just kind of gently deflect the request. He categorically rejects it. And in fact, he says, it, it, clearly something different is called for. And he presses in and increases their oppression. And one of the things that the Israelite slaves did was they built, they made bricks for the construction projects of Egypt. And we're used to seeing kind of, you know, the stone facades of temples or of pyramids, but most everything in ancient Egypt was built from bricks. And there are some bricks that have survived that are in places like the British Museum or the University of Chicago Museum. And it's fascinating. You can look at one of these bricks and it has the name of the Pharaoh stamped on it. And then through that brick, 
you can see that there's straw in it. And the problem with Egyptian kind of clay was that it, it didn't cohere, it didn't stick together very well. And so you had to mix straw into it in order for the brick to be usable. And so brick, straw was supplied, and there was a quota, like an amount of bricks that they had to make. And the, the foremen, who were from the, the slave group themselves, they were responsible then for a certain amount of bricks. So again, one of the archaeological records actually says it, it gives the name of the foreman, Yupa, and then it says, target, 2,000 bricks. And then in a very specific way, it says 660 arrived, 410 arrived, 560 arrived, total, 1,630, deficit, 370. So there's this super organized administrative structure there for the sake of slavery, for the sake of oppression. And the Israelites are now being told, keep that same quota, but the straw that you need to be able to make that brick, you have to go and find it yourself. They're being put into an impossible situation. So what does that look like? So I wondered if, with it being a fifth Sunday, and so we've got our, our fours and our five-year-olds with us, I wondered if they could give me a hand this morning. And um, if any of you guys, as many of you want to come up, come on up, because I have got a construction project for us here. So if some of the kids want to come up and help us. Excellent. Come on, Henry. Calvin, come on up, guys. Okay. That's older siblings to help is great, Parker. Thank you. Parker's the, old, the biggest four-year-old we have here. Okay. Here's what we're going to do, guys. Okay. I've got, a bunch of, I've got a bunch of blocks right here. Okay. Here, here, actually, spread apart for a second. Here. Let's step apart for a quick second. Good. Henry, you go to that side. Okay, so here's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get us started so you can kind of see what it's like. And what I want us to do, okay, I want you to, we're going we're gonna to do this kind of in a time. Grab as many of these blocks as you can and then, whoa, 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 easy, easy. I know we're excited. Um, and I want you to, on the, the, two, the two towers that I've started, let's build and let's see how big a tower that we can build. Okay, ready? And we're going to time it. Go. All right, try to put them all in, one, in a good stack. It, doesn't any, it does us no good if the, if the tower falls apart. That's not very good labor. All right, let's build it. See how high it can go or spread out. Okay, awesome. Excellent, okay, good. All right. Good job, guys. Okay, let's step back. Let's look and see what we've got. Okay, it's a little messy. That's, that's a good observation. Okay, we've got one. Here, here. Move. So we've got one tower. Okay, well done. Okay, now here's, here, here is our challenge. Let's put, help me throw these bricks back in. Excellent. And now here's what we're going to do. We're going to do something. So the Israelites were told, hey, you need to do just as much work 
but you're not going to be given everything you need for it. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you the same amount of time, and there are bricks, there are blocks scattered throughout the congregation right now, okay? So you need to come find them and come back, and let's see if we can build the same tower. Ready? Go. No, no, you can't use these. No, the, the, the foremen say, you got to go find it for yourselves. Okay, start building. Start building. You found one. Awesome. August. Right here. Okay. Here, put them together. Quick. Okay, we got to build it. You found some. Excellent. Oh, no. Okay, time's up. Time's up. Hmm. How did we do? Did we do as well? Did we make as big a tower? No. Hmm, no. Okay, okay, here's the bad news then. Here's the bad news. I guess you guys are going to have to get beaten now because we didn't do the work that we meant to. Okay, I'm just kidding about that part. Okay, thank you guys very much. Okay. Go ahead and go sit back down with your parents. Excellent. Now with a bunch of five-year-olds, it's a fun game. It's a great illustration of the impossibility of the task. But for the Israelites, it's no game. For the Israelites, it is a matter of life and death. That the records that we have from ancient Egypt that talk about the experience of the slave labor of building bricks point to the grimness, to the brutality, to the cruelty. And that's the position that the Israelites find themselves in. That's the place where they are. Things have not gotten better as they have obeyed God. Things have gotten harder. And why is that? Like, what has gone on? What's happened to lead to that? Well, look at how Pharaoh responds to their request in verse 2. Moses and Aaron ask, and Pharaoh says, Is that so? And who is I am? Why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I don't know I am, and I will not let Israel go. God had revealed his name, the Lord, Yahweh, I am, to Moses. And that was to be the name that he was to give to the Israelites, a name that would open up the doors, a name that would bring kind of a sense of this is what God is up to. But that name doesn't open any doors with Pharaoh. He drops that name and it just kind of lands on the ground. It doesn't make any difference to Pharaoh. And it exposes the central question for the Exodus. The question that, in a sense, guides and animates the entire narrative. Who is the God? Like, who is it that actually is God? Is it Yahweh, I am? Or is it Pharaoh? Pharaoh, who is considered a descendant and a representative of the sun god. Who is it that has the authority to command? 
Who is it that has the power to compel? That's the question. And the answer for Pharaoh is, I do. Pharaoh presses in to his authority and his power as over against God. And you can even see it in this passage, in this contrast. Look at verse 1. When, when Moses and Aaron come, they say, at the beginning they say, this is what I am, the God of Israel says. And in contrast to that, look down to verse 10. As the, the, the foreman and the slave driver speak, they tell the people, this is what Pharaoh says. That's the choice before them. Is it what God says or is it what Pharaoh says? And in the reality, why do things get harder? In a fundamental way, they get harder because Pharaoh does not know God. He rejects who God is. And therefore, he oppresses God's people. That's the question that's before them is, well, who is God? And what difference does it make? Things get harder because Pharaoh doesn't know who God is and doesn't care. But there's another dimension to this question of who is God. And, and I wonder if it's perhaps the dimension that for many of us hits a little closer to home. Because look at how the Israelite foremen respond. So they go and they plead with, with the Pharaoh and say, please, would you lift this burden? And Pharaoh rejects it. And as they go out, this is, they encounter Moses and Aaron. And, and look what they say in verse 21. May I am judge and punish you for making us stink before Pharaoh and his officials. You have put a sword into their hands, an excuse to kill us. Do you get where they have moved over the course of this story? They were with the people, hearing that God cares, that God is concerned for them, bowing down and worshiping, to now rejecting Moses and Aaron and calling for God's judgment to be upon them. And it seems probably the underlying conviction that they must have is this idea of, well, well clearly Moses and Aaron have gotten this wrong. Like Moses and Aaron, when they've gone to Pharaoh, they must have screwed it up because this isn't what I am would want. Like, God should judge you because you have sinned. You have done the wrong thing. Because where we find ourselves now, things are harder. They're not better. It must mean that you somehow disobeyed. You thwarted God's will because this isn't where we're supposed to be. And in a different way, and yet in a very profoundly similar connected way to Pharaoh, they don't know God. They don't grasp who God is and what he's up to. And so when things don't go according to what they expect, instead of crying out to God, instead of trusting him, they complain. They don't get it either. They don't know who is the Lord. And so that's the central question, not just for the Exodus. It is the central fundamental question for you and for me. That I would say that any and every situation and circumstance and season in life that you find yourself, always the key question to ask is, who is the Lord and what could he be up to here? What is it that maybe God is doing that I find myself in this place? Because the reality is, God could have delivered them right away. When he sent 
Moses and Aaron to appear before the Pharaoh, he could have made Pharaoh's heart respond and say yes and release the people. And he doesn't. So what are we to learn from this story? Like, what is it that God has to teach us about who he is and about what he's up to by the fact that things get harder and not better? Two brief lessons to draw out from this. The first, sin is a cruel master. The first thing that we can see from this passage is that sin is a cruel master that enslaves and seeks to dominate us and to control us, and things get worse and worse. For the, the uh, Israelites, the Pharaoh, the Egyptians stand in this place, and the Bible says that that's a picture, that's a pointer to where sin and evil stand in relation to us. That sin and evil seek to master and take us captive. That's the language that the Bible uses so often when it describes sin. So consider this. This is a letter in the New Testament. Paul wrote to one of his kind of companions, Titus, and in chapter 3, verse 3, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And we like to think of ourselves as those who are in charge that we uh, command and that we have mastery over ourselves and our desires. But the reality is so often that our, our desires master us and they enslave us. And so if you have a, a desire for your self-image, of the way in which you're presented and, and how you look in front of other people, that easily can master you. It can enslave you and it can kind of take you captive so that you do its bidding and that how you, you present yourself, how you speak, the things you don't say, all of it enslaved to this sense of how your self-image is in charge. Or maybe it's something like food. Maybe for some of us, we know what it's like to feel enslaved to our desire for food that we seek it for comfort, we seek it for, for consolation when things are hard. And we feel powerless sometimes to stop ourselves. Or it's that image, that video on the internet that, that kind of, in a sense, draws and entices you and you realize in some moment of clarity that you feel enslaved. That's the reality of how sin works. And for this picture with the Israelites, it is a way of pointing us to the truth that sin is a cruel master. And it is not without reason that when the Bible describes what you and I are like apart from God, that who we are in ourselves, that it uses words like enslaved and captive and mute and blind and dead. That is the reality. That's the reality of where the Israelites find themselves, is they're helpless. And so sin is a cruel master, which points to the second thing that we can draw out of this passage, that we have to cry out to God, who is the only one who can rescue us. God is the only one who can set us free. 
And so when things get harder, it may be that precisely it pushes us to the end of ourselves. That it means that our own abilities and resources and opportunities and experience and all of it, it dries up. It proves itself to be ineffectual that doesn't actually amount to saving us. So that we have to grapple with the reality of ourselves, but even more, the hope that God is the one who can save us. That's where the the Israelites are being pushed to in this passage. When things are hard, who are they going to cry out to? We're told back in in Exodus chapter 2, we saw a couple weeks ago as Pastor Todd preached, that they cry out to God and God hears them. But here, when things get harder, when they press down, look at verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and they, they pleaded, they cried out to Pharaoh. And they identified, they go on and they say, Pharaoh, we're your servants. Why are you treating us this way? We're your servants. God is graciously, in a severe way, pushing them and us to the end of ourselves so that we have to cry out to him to set us free. That's the pattern that God does. And it's the pattern that we see here that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the one who has walked this path that things get harder before they get better. In fact, things get harder precisely in order that they can get better. Jesus is the one who was called by his father when he is baptized The heavens are open, the spirit descends, and he hears his father's voice say, you are my son whom I love. I'm well pleased with you. How can you imagine a more clear sense of God saying, I am for you? And so what happens on the other side? Things get harder. In fact, they press in harder and harder. Jesus finds himself rejected by the religious leaders considered crazy by his family, that even his own followers push him away and run away from him. And they bring him to the point of the cross. Things get desperately harder. And that's the pattern of how God works because it is at the cross where things are hardest that that's the means by which things get better. So in this pattern that we see, actually, we we can tell in Jesus that those things have to go together. Things do not get better. There is no resurrection. There is no new life unless things die, unless Jesus dies for us. So that's our hope. That's our answer. How is it that God says, you can trust me when things get harder? It's because Jesus has already walked in that for us and things have landed, sin has landed on Jesus in your place. And in the case of the Israelites, the good news is that it's not much longer until things get better. Their hope is just around the corner. But you and I, we don't have that promise right now. I cannot tell you that right now, as you're going through something hard, that if you can just hold on a little bit, that it'll get better. It may not. It may not change 
in this context, in this life. The hope that we have that things will get better is that God has raised Jesus from the dead. Is that the resurrection has begun, that God has already promised and made the down payment that he will put everything right. And that things may not get better now in this season, but they will. And God will accomplish it. And so that's the pattern now for our lives. That's why Paul can say that our light and momentary troubles are achieving. They're achieving. They themselves are bringing about an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That's the hope of the gospel, brothers and sisters, this morning. That this may be a place of hardship. This may be a place of darkness. This may be a place where there doesn't seem to be any silver lining, only the dark clouds. But this is the place that God is with you in it. Emmanuel means God with us. He says, I am with you. That I am will be with you. That's the hope. That there is a resurrection to come. Things will get better precisely because things have been harder in Jesus Christ for us. Let's pray. Father, we ask, would you enable us to know you that's what we need. We need to know that you are the I am, the, that you are the one who has life in himself. You are the one who is sovereignly free, who is good beyond measure. And that you will keep your promises. That, that you will deliver us into the land and that you will be our God and that we will be your people. So we pray, help us look to Jesus now. Help us be fed by him to be sustained in that hope that as, as things are hard now, that your promise that they will be better will be kept in Christ, through whom we pray. Amen.